0: for listening to the leadership under fire humanizing the narrative podcast this episode features the recording of a discussion that was held at the 2018 leadership under fire national conference in evanston illinois the team was grateful to all of the leaders who contributed to the event and the types of individuals who spent two days rigorously contemplating the moral mental and physical aspects of mission-oriented leadership and optimal human performance. Of course, that includes our guest in this episode, retired Colonel Ronald Catton. Catton was a graduate and instructor of the U.S. Air Force Fighter Weapons School. He was the first of only two students to ever complete the course with a 100% score in all subjects. Catton also flew with legendary Colonel John Boyd, then the Chief of Academics at the Weapons School. He served in the Vietnam War, flying hundreds of missions, and later flew hundreds of air shows, including those with the Thunderbirds. In this recording, you'll also hear the voices of Leadership Under Fire's Eric Nuremberg and author Lawrence Gonzalez. Both have been featured in previous episodes on this podcast. The Leadership Under Fire team is excited to announce that another in-person national summit will be taking place in Annapolis, Maryland on Friday, April 21st, 2023. More details to come. Now, please enjoy this episode.
1: Let me just begin by saying, you'll never catch me going down a hallway full of smoke. I might be the guy in the bedroom with, that went to bed with a cigarette, but I, you know, that actually happened to me and that's another story. <laughs> Uh, I was born and raised in Waukegan, Illinois, just about 30 miles north of here. Uh, I was the only son of an uh, immigrant uh, husband and wife from Canada. They were very patriotic, obviously. They wanted to be U.S. citizens and so forth, so I was kind of raised in that environment. Uh, How many of you uh, had brothers and sisters in your life? Uh, uh, Most of you, see. Uh, and those of us who didn't, we didn't learn a lot of the uh, how to get along skills. And, so, and that uh, came back to haunt me later in my life and, uh, as I did things I shouldn't have done and so forth. Um, born and raised in Waukegan, Illinois, I was uh, uh, in line to someday be the, uh, the varsity catcher. Uh, uh, threw out my arm, rotor, but you didn't have surgery in those days. Uh, you were lucky if you ever got to go even to, the, you probably saw the school nurse. That was about the best, that you closest you got to somebody medically qualified. But in any case, uh, from there, I uh, went to Carroll College in Waukesha, Wisconsin, yeah, uh, just outside of Milwaukee, if you're familiar with that area. Uh, we had a whole bunch of guys who were World War II vets there on the, on the GI Bill. And uh, in those days, uh, C's get degrees and I, uh, you know, and uh, and these uh, uh, war vets, they taught me how to drink beer and uh, eat shrimp, and uh, they told war stories, and they and then of course Korea hit, and man, I'm all excited about becoming a warrior, and uh, except that I intuitively I, I thought that you know what I ought to do first of all is get a little bit more college, and and and, 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 and so forth, and and they had the draft in those days, so my dad is driving me back to Waukegan. Uh, uh, after my second year in college, and he said, "Well, what are your plans this for summer son and i said well i 'm going to go back to my lifeguard job out of Cedar Lake, which is out west of, of Waukegan, and because uh, that 's where all the girls from Chicago go uh, in the summer, and I had this girl thing i don 't know <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and my problem was that i wasn 't uh, one of the best looking guys on the beach, so i uh, I trained as a smooth talker instead, but, uh, but in any case, uh, I actually got to I actually got to save a young woman's young woman's life, and, uh, uh, and I drug her ashore and uh, gave her artificial respiration and she came to and and but she didn't kiss me or anything. She just barfed all over me. <laughs> <laughs> so much for uh, you know life experience. Anyway, uh, I said to my dad, "Well, I, that's what I'm going to do," and he said, "Well." Uh, you know, your number's coming up on the draft. And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, your, your grades aren't good enough to be deferred. And I said, well, uh, okay. He said, you can you can wait to get drafted and be an infantryman, or you can do something else. I'd always been interested in airplanes. And uh, I said, well, I'll go down to the Air Force office. Uh, and I walked in there, and this sergeant, he had on all this stuff, and he's, you know, he really looked great. He had all these stripes on his sleeves and everything. and uh, I said, I came down here to talk about enlisting. Uh, He said, well, tell me a little bit. You got any college? Yeah, I got some college. How would you like to be a navigator? A navigator. What does a navigator do? He tells the pilot where to go. Oh, really? Hey, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think I'd like to be a navigator and tell the pilot where to go. What do I need to do to become a navigator and tell a pilot where to go? Well, go home and get your 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 birth certificate and so forth. We'll catch up with your college as far as your college background. And uh, come on back here and we'll sign you up to become a navigator to tell a pilot where to go. So I went home and, you know, I'm really excited about this. Told folks about it. Uh, got back out to the recruiting office about 30 minutes, uh, 30 minutes before I was supposed to be there. And a different sergeant's sitting there. And... Uh, he said, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'm here to become a navigator and tell a pilot where to go. He said, oh, I'm sorry about your eyes. My eyes. What's wrong with my eyes? He said, well, you're going to become a navigator. That's usually a guy that wants to be a pilot, but because if he's got eye problems, he becomes a navigator. I said, well, I got great eyes. I, I, I can see. I got 2010, just like Ted Williams. I'm not the athlete that he is, obviously, but I got great eyes. And he said, you got college? Yeah, got that. Uh-huh. And so I signed up to be a pilot. Now that's how one of the world's greatest fighter paws ended up being a fighter pilot. <laughs> <laughs> um, did I get lucky? I was lucky. Yeah, I did, didn't I? I'd like to talk to you before we get done here today, Nick, about getting lucky. I'm just going to lay it out there. If you want to be lucky, just understand where lucky is. Lucky, in my experience, is that intersection between opportunity and preparation. That's where you get lucky. If you don't have the preparation, and, and Nick and his, uh, and Jason and, all, and, and our other speakers and everything all been talking about, pre- if you don't prepare, you keep missing what? The opportunity. They've got to get like this. But if you're not prepared to be lucky, In my experience, in retrospect in many cases, uh, it's hard to be lucky. It's almost impossible to be lucky if you're not prepared to be lucky. Now, we're not all lucky. Some of us get killed in combat or we get killed uh, uh, fighting a fire or whatever, or in a place work or whatever it happens to be, but uh, you got to prepare to be lucky in my experience. Okay, so then I went through fighter pilot school and all that and, and I was unfortunate. I was very well suited to become a pilot, and so I kind of breezed through the program, and uh, then went out into an operation. Lafayette went to Korea. Uh, the war was over. Came back in a squadron, and so forth. So, on. my my mantra was uh, to uh, fly airplanes, drink whiskey, and chase girls. Not necessarily in that order. But my point here is I wasn't preparing to be lucky. The opportunities are out there. But I I couldn't figure out why I was, and I I was a great, good pilot, really. I I was really, it's hard to be humble when you're great, but I was really a good pilot. (laughs) And and so I'm I'm, uh, going along and fortunately somebody, a senior officer, Perry Lesby was his name, he took an interest in me, in why I have no idea, but he took an interest in me, and uh, he, he uh, asked me to become a part of his standardization evaluation team, which is a, where you go up as a check pilot, you're a check pilot is what you are, you go up and you make sure the guys know what they're doing and they're doing it well, and it's a flying safety thing that you have to go through every year, and, uh, and, and it's the top of the food chain in a, in a fighter, fighter outfit, if you're on the Stanley Valley and, and so I did, and then an opportunity came by uh, to attend the Air Force Top Gun School uh, called the Fighter Weapons School. Did you all get a brochure that showed pictures, of, that they showed the pictures, and I'm standing there in my G suit with, with my—that was, that was me when I was lean and mean at about 165, 170 pounds, thinking that I was 220 pounds that where is that gentleman that's a great big guy here in the? I mean this guy he's, he's a, yeah, he's over there. And I, don't, I don't mean to embarrass you. I thought I was that big <laughs> at 165 pounds and, and of course, that's why I've got a bad shoulder and two steel knees, you know <laughs> I, I, I did, but in any, so in any case, uh, then I ran into Boyd and um, I'll turn it back.
2: Well. Uh, some of us have testimonies of, of how John Boyd really changed our lives, although we never met him. And you have the distinction of having been a student of Boyd's and a protege and later a, a confidant of, of John Boyd's. And so please tell us um, who he was, but, but more importantly, how he, how he impacted your life.
1: Okay. You've read the book. And you remember the chronology in the book uh, talked about how I walked into, I, I entered his classroom with uh, uh, 12 other guys. I was the one of, tw- uh, actually, 12, can't, fighter pilots can't count. Anyways, it's, it's 12 of us in the room. And, and uh, we're all candidates to become fighter weapons instructors. It's the Air Force Top Gun School, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, as I say, I had a pretty high opinion. I did not have what you guys talk about so much, of which is humility. I, I was a prime example of what you'd call arrogance, which is the flip side of humility, isn't it? I could have written a book on arrogance. But in any case, you know, as a young man, and, and, and I listened to this guy for, oh, you know, and this is a guy that I came to Las Vegas to the top gun school to wax his ass. And after about uh, 20 minutes in the classroom, uh, I wasn't so anxious to get in a, uh, I wasn't so anxious to go up with him anymore, because he was, you know, he was going to make a movie star out of me, where I end up in his gun film instead of me make, ending up in his, in my gun film. But in any case, um, yeah, it was a matter of. Well, then, it, been in the class about uh, uh, just a week, almost well, almost two weeks. And, and my squadron from my home base in Clovis, New Mexico, uh, came to Nellis to uh, where we were for a gunnery training because they had a great huge gunnery range there. And so the guy, I got a call from one of the guys, hey Ron, we're in town, uh, let's have beer. And uh, of course they were in one of the barracks there in the base, so I went there and they pulled out the six packs since there was actually several cases. And, and, and we had some beer, and of course you know what happens when you drink beer, you come up with all kinds of good ideas, right? Huh? Has that been your experience, you know? Yeah, you bet. Look out. <laughs> Anyhow, so we decided to go to town and uh, drink some more beer and watch the girl, uh, the dancers, and the shows, you know, and, and have fun together. Well, so they all took off, and, uh, and you read the story here, uh, how uh, I and my beautiful—I I had this beautiful corvette that Corvette today would be worth about $250,000. And, and that Corvette uh, at the time I bought it was $4,600, brand new, you know, in 1959. 50, excuse me, 56. Anyway, so uh, I go to the—so uh, so I'm all dressed up now to go downtown. I go through the gate and the guy didn't salute me. What the hell? I put it back in reverse. Backed up, chewed him out. Put her back, and, and boom, Off I went, and down the. You see, you got to be kidding, Caton. No, I'm just telling you the truth. This is how it was. And of course, uh, how many of you smoke or have smoked? You know that. You know if you're smoking, your, the cigarette can get caught on your lip, and your fingers go out through the burning ash on the tip of the cigarette, and you burn your fingers in here, and the hot coals fall to the floor of your shiny Corvette? Whoa, mayday, mayday, we got a problem here. <laughs> so you can imagine, if you were behind me, you, you can imagine how the Corvette was kind of. <laughs> and uh, all of us, and I came up, and I still hadn't found the coal yet. And uh, there was a gas station over here. I whipped across traffic, and I got into this gas station. Shut that puppy down. Going down here. Got 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 uh, that uh, burning ember in control. You don't believe this, do you? <laughs> Most of what I'll say today is true. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I get I get take care of this 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 burning end here, and and when I come up, here's a police officer standing there and he wanted my name and, you know, all of the goodies. And uh, He said, have you been drinking? And I said, no, sir, I haven't been drinking. I've, I didn't say this, but I thought, I haven't been drinking, I've been guzzling. <laughs> and, but anyway, I, I, I tried to persuade him uh, that I hadn't been drinking. Well, he didn't have the— the tests, they, in, 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 this was 1959, we're talking about. They didn't have the, the tests that they have now. Uh, they made you walk a straight line. He was so convinced I'd been drinking, he didn't, ask me to, he didn't even ask me to walk the straight line. He said, he said why don't you follow me uh, to the police station? <laughs> and so I followed him to the police station very slowly, and we got the police station, and again, I went through uh, the process of uh, trying to persuade him that I hadn't been drinking excessively and I lost all credibility when I puked on the floor. <laughs> and So I spent the rest of the evening in jail and the, um, the officer of the day came out and, and took me back to the base and so forth and so on. And uh, the next morning I had the world-class chew out by the commandant and he grounded me, took the keys to my Corvette. Uh, he, the only reason that I didn't get court-martialed was that my, my boss back in Clovis uh, had shot an ME-109 off his ass in combat over Europe in World War II, and he didn't want to embarrass him by, sending, by flunking me out of the school uh, for my DWI and so forth and so on. So John Boyd then was the guy I had hit absolute rock bottom. Sometimes what I learned from that is later in the retrospect is sometimes you got to hit rock bottom before you wake up and before you realize that the things that you love to do, you're about to lose it. And I can remember vividly just as it was yesterday. I'm glad it wasn't. Yeah, I went out into the hot Nevada sun and where am I going to go? I don't know. I know Captain Boyd. I'll go see him, the head of academics, the guy that I'd been in the classroom with. And you read about it in the book. And I went and to explained to him that my dream was gone. I wanted to be—I instru- wanted to wax his ass, and I wanted to become an instructor in the school, and all that. That dream was gone. Was there anything I could do to recover? Rock bottom, absolute rock bottom. And I remember, he, he, he was sitting in a high-tech uh, a chair, one of those that swivel all the way around, you know. <laughs> that was a high-tech chair ter- uh, in 1959. He, and he had this pencil in his hand, he, like he's aiming through a pepper. And he said, well, I suppose, he said, no, Captain, nobody's ever gone through this school 100%. But if you do, if you can, if you're smart enough, I guess they'd have to take another look at you, to become an instructor here in the weapons school, and uh, take your best shot at waxing my ass. Well, uh, why don't you ask me to jump across uh, Grand Canyon in a single step? <laughs> I mean, but what I learned from John Boyd is that the impossible—that which seems impossible—is doable if you really set your mind to it. If you realize that you're smarter than you think you are, that you got more guts than you thought you had, and uh, you put your mind to it. Uh, uh, I'll be forever grateful to John Boyd, and he started me then on a path that went from that to being called back as an instructor in the top school. Man, I'm at the top of the very food chain. Well, of course, there are those Thunderbirds, you know, the aer- aerobatic team, right? You know, not the Blue Angels, the Air Force Thunderbirds. You okay? Uh, they learned a lot from us. But anyway, uh, uh, they got a drinking problem, too. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, uh, so I, I'm an we- instructor in a fighter weapons school. They gave me back the keys to my Corvette, and I've, I've met and I'm dating uh, a dancer at the Tropicana. <laughs> of course, I'm a bachelor. Life is really good. I mean, you know, I've, I'm right at the top of the. And then uh, lo and behold, I got a, I'm out washing my beautiful 1956 Corvette one Saturday morning, and the telephone rings. I go back. We didn't have these cell phones and stuff then. He had actually I put something in your ear here. And, and it was the officer of the day. Ron, the Thunderbirds are in uh, uh, Scottfield, Illinois, and, and uh, they got an air show tomorrow. And all of their—they got all of their spare airplane is down, and the, and the lead airplane is down. We need to get another spare to them because they still had one Thunderbird spare airplane at, at, at Nellis. There, would you be available to fly the airplane out to Scott? Well, does a bear live in the woods? <laughs> to, to, You want me to take this shiny red, white, and blue airplane and fly it from here to Scott Field, play like I'm a Thunderbird? Whoa, you bet I'm available. He didn't tell me how crappy the weather was at Scott. Like thunderstorms, driving rain, zero, zero. So I flew to Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. Refueled because we didn't have drop tanks on the on the Thunderbird airplanes, and then now I'm going to Scott Field from there, and uh, I waited until it got to be night because usually the thunderstorms will recede at night, right? So, uh, and we didn't have all the fancy instruments they have now. All of our instruments were round. You heard uh, uh, Joe refer to that a little earlier. This is World War II technology and. So I got to Scott and um, got a whole approach control, the radar, and a Roger Thunderbird 8. This drunk is Thunderbird 8. <laughs> I mean, you know, from that, from that experience with John Boyd. And uh, I'm taking the liberty of telling a story, and it's almost over. Uh, so, uh, uh, Scott press Control, uh, that's Thunderbird 8. Uh, yes, Thunderbird 8, we got you in contact. Uh, be advised that Scott Field is below minimums. What are your intentions? Roger, this Thunderbird 8, I'm going to land. Uh, repeat again, uh, Thunderbird 8, uh, Scott Field is below minimums, which is to say you've got to go to your alternate, you can't land here. And I'm thinking in my mind, hey, the show's got to go on. These guys got to have this airplane tomorrow and I got to get this puppy on the ground so that they can have this airplane tomorrow. Right? And I'm a fighter weapons school instructor, right? And I'm a recovered drunk, right? <laughs> so uh, uh, they hand me off now to ground control approach. Now in the airplanes today, we have instruments where you can fly the instruments down. As long as you keep the needle centered, it'll take you right down to the threshold of the runway. It's called an instrument landing system. In those days, you had a guy sitting out in a little shed with a radar thing going around, and he was looking at your blip on his radar screen, and he'd say, "Uh, Roger, you're uh, to the left, you're to the right, you're high on a glide path, you're low, on." he'd talk you all the way down. So the approach control turns me over to the ground control approach guy, and this young guy comes out, a young guy, probably in his 20s, like I am. Thunderbird uh, 8, the BA drives, we are no longer uh, below minimums. Uh, we're zero-zero. What are your intentions? Zero visibility, zero ceiling. And we have thunderstorms in the area. <laughs> yeah, I knew that. And uh, what are your intentions? Uh, Roger, uh, I'm going to land. And then this voice comes over the radio. It sounded like my dad. Mm-hmm. Good evening, Thunderbird 8. This is Scott Prochinto. Voice is way right down here, you know. Son, I understand that you want to land. Call me son. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, and of course what he is, he's a he's a master sergeant that's been on that radar scope for years and years and years. And years and and, and I, and I said, yes, sir. I mean, I recognized immediately this guy was somebody that had been on that scope for a long time. And he starts guiding me down. In front of bird eight, uh, left of, left of uh, center line, uh, slightly below guide path. Didn't tell me what to do. He just told me where I was. So come back a little bit on the stick, move over to the right. And he, he took me down the, are you with me? The hair coming up on the back of your neck. And it, it is on my neck because I'm thinking about it again down and down. down. Uh, Thunderbird 8, understand you're going below minimums. Keep coming, son. Nothing out here. I'm flying the heck out of this. And he said, all right, uh, lift your nose to get into a landing attitude. Here's a guy on a radar screen. He knows where I am on that screen. He's looked at it so many times for so many years. He said, lift your nose. I lifted my nose. I'm on the runway, and the runway lights start going by like this. God, it's hard to be humble when you're great. (laughs) 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 So I taxied in, and it was all I could do to find my way to where the the Thunderbirds were parked and everything. Parked the airplane, put it to bed, grabbed a lift to town and checked in the same hotel where they were. Now it's about 2 o'clock in the morning. and so, uh, next morning I show I'm down at the I show up at the at the, uh, the little restaurant there that was at the hotel a motel and and uh, I walk into the restaurant part and and on the other side of the room there there are the Thunderbirds. There they are in their beautiful uniforms with their silk scarves. These are the world's this is the Air Force's best. Best of the crop guys. And they're all sitting over there looking like a million bucks waiting for a change, really. And I'm standing there in this grubby flight suit and it's all sweat stained in here, you know. You've all been there, the sweat stained part and the salt and all that. Ron, how are you? Come on over here. This is Hoot Gibson, the leader, uh, an ace in, world, in Korea. Shot down five megs. Uh, what are you doing here, Ron? Well, sir, i Brought you in an airplane last night. Oh, thanks for doing He said, did you get in about 1.30 or so? And I'm standing here and all these thunderbirds are sitting around the table. And I, I said, yep. yes, sir. He says, was it raining? I said, oh, yes, sir. Uh, was it below minimums? Yes, sir. Was it zero, zero? Yes, sir. Should I quit asking questions? Yes, sir. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot, Ron, we really appreciate it. They all got up and left, I mean, right then, they all just like they were on the numbers, you know. Okay, guys, let's go. And they all stood up and left, and I'm standing there, you know. And uh, so uh, I turned around and uh, had my breakfast, made my way out to the base. And I'm out there with the crew chiefs, and I'm listening to them critique the show, and and the Thunderbirds are doing all their stuff, you know, and I'm watching all this. I say, wow, this is, you know, this is really, you can imagine, you know, and and so then when they finish the air show, now they're going to fly back to, to uh, Las Vegas, and Hoot Gibson comes up to me and he says, Ron, he says, "Uh, we got all the airplanes fixed now, how would you like to fly back with us? normally as a spare guy you'd go by yourself and you know, because you're not a member of the, group. I could fly back with you, yeah. Oh, I'd really like to do that, sir. So, I'm Thunderbird 8, you got that? We take off, and we join up, and here we are, we're flying back to Las Vegas, and, 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 and when we went by Clovis where I was stationed, where I was previously stationed, I, I kind of, you know, you know kind of came up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and so, and we get to Albuquerque. We got to refuel because we're, we're clean airplanes. And uh, any of you been to Albuquerque, you know that uh, the elevation there is about five thousand, fifty-two hundred feet. And they grow the world's largest thunderstorms there. They go up to fifty thousand feet, a thunderstorm to fifty thousand feet. And these are big mothers. And I mean, they dump they. D- they don't get much rain in, in, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, when they do, the whole, the whole world, you know, they really really gets with it. So we arrive there, and you can't, we can't all go down together because of the weather. So we get over the beacon, the radio beacon, and uh, lead and two go down through the, the gunk and the thunderstorms around, and, and the rest of us go around the pattern, and then three and four go down, and then four and five go down, then five and six go down, and now it's time for seven and for us to go down. So it's our our turn now. And uh, of course, I'm out there. It's it's weather here, you know? And I'm out there flying, keeping the light on the star, light on the star, light on the wingtip, on the star on the side of the airplane. That's your position. Do whatever you have to do to keep it there. And number seven gives me this. You ready? Anybody know what that means? Transmitter out, receiver out. And then he points over at me, and like that. Now I'm the leader. I'm not the Thunderbird leader, but I'm a Thunderbird leader, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, you gotta. <laughs> it's all part of being humble, right? <laughs> anyway, so, oh man, I'm gonna smoke this guy. He's gonna be. He's going to be so impressed with my ability to fly instruments and everything, which uh, most fighter pilots can't do very well, and so we start down the slide. It's our turn now to come in, and we just started down, and uh, Bobby Moore, the wingman here with no radio, uh, he's on my right wing, and and, uh, then I hear Hoot Gibson on the radio. He says, heads up, Thunderbirds, there's about an inch and a half of water on the runway. Which meant watch out for hydroplaning, right? And maybe don't expect to stop as quickly as you might otherwise. You deal with hydroplaning, don't you, with your big trucks when you're, on a, when you're responding to a, a fire and it's been raining and so forth, you've got to be careful. You don't. Anyways, so of course I hear this no they'll sweat and we come down and we break out and there's the runway right there. Check out Bobby Moore and he's—actually he was over on the left wing. I give him a—checking him out here and and great, runway's right there. It's a short runway, but it's right there. I'm going to put this puppy in about the first hundred feet of that runway. And when you're landing in a formation, what happens is that here's the element leader and here's the wingman, and when you touch down, the wingman pulls his drag chute first he gets a good shoot. He comes over the radio and says, "Good shoot." And then the leader of the element, he pulls his drag shoot to, to be able to slow down. You got that? First of, first, no shoot uh, If he calls no shoot, if his shoot doesn't work, uh, then the leader moves over as far as he can to the right because he knows this guy's going to come whistling through because he can't slow down fast enough. Or he's slowing down at a? He's not slowing down as fast as he would ordinarily with a drag chute. So we come in and we put that puppy, up. I can't tell, I could spend all day just telling you how great that landing was, but we <laughs> <laughs> touched it down. Rolling on. I don't hear anything from Bobby. I wonder why. He hasn't got any radio. I knew that. I look back. Sure enough, he's got a good shoot, and I look up ahead, and I haven't got much runway left <laughs> uh, because the F-100C that we were flying didn't have flaps. And those of you who have any uh, experience in aviation know that flaps allow you to land at a much slower speed than if you didn't have flaps. But that particular model that we were flying didn't have didn't have flaps. So now I'm a, I'm a high speed uh, uh, so. Okay, that's great, uh, now I understand what's going on. I pull the drag chute. That sucker doesn't do, it, it doesn't cigarette roll. It doesn't uh, May West, split in half. It falls out on the runway. <laughs> <laughs> the whole canister just falls out on the runway. Now this is a Thunderbird aircraft maintained by the pick of the crop Maintenance guys, and it drops out on the runway. Now, now I'm really in trouble because I'm going down that runway, uh, and I'm hydroplaning. I I know I'm. I, I, I gotta really be careful on the brakes, really. I came in on those brakes like like a father might touch his. Not like this, but <laughs> And You know what that airplane did? It did a 180-degree turn on that runway, and I'm going down the runway backwards. <laughs> That's true, 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 Saw the headlines, you know, they say just before you die, you, you know, substitute pilot crashes Thunderbird. <laughs> And then, just like in the firefighting business that happens so often, I had an epiphany. That's when you figure out momentarily what to do, right? And I added power, going down the runway backwards, jet engine, I added power, and that puppy came to the nicest, smoothest stop you can imagine. God, it's hard to be humble when you're great. (laughs) (laughs) So we, you know, and it's raining, it's raining, and everything. So all the Thunderbirds, they come out with a bus to take them into base operations, and I, I went back out to the end of the runway and got the canister for the, and I reloaded the, the drag chute and everything. We took off and landed in Las Vegas, and, and um, so then a week or so, a week or so later, I got a phone call from Hoot Gibson, the leader. He said. Uh, Ron, I wanted to thank you for bringing that airplane out to Scott Field for us. That was really helpful. I uh, really appreciate it. I said, "Well, yes, sir, you're, you're welcome. It was, it was just great experience. He said, you ever thought about being a Thunderbird? I said, sir, every fighter pilot thinks about being a Thunderbird, uh, but uh, I, I would never you know, every year we had 100 fighter pilots recommended by their various uh, commanders and everything apply for two jobs. So the odds were uh, 100 to two, however you figure out. Anyway, uh, (laughs) so my fitness reports aren't that shiny, sir. And he said to me, and I'll never forget it. He said to me, Ron, we know more about you and you realize and of course then of course it went out and, but i want to make a point right here the, the people that you work for in your group wherever it happens to be and everything they know more about you than you realize you're being watched 20, you're being watched every moment of the day by your peers by your supervisors, and so forth and so on. So, what I learned from that was, you know, try to be all you can be all the time, instead of just, you know, once in a while. But that was what—that experience with John—and John Boyd has no respect at all for Thunderbirds. He thought we were a bunch of fancy boys with fancy uniforms and fancy scarves. And he was right. But we were representing the Air Force, and, and that was an important mission. And, but my point is that uh, that's the impact that he had, and I went from there to uh, become a leader in combat and so forth and so on. And, uh, but thank you for the question.
2: Leadership under fire, and, and most of the folks in this room are proponents of, of rigorous study and, and critical thought. And As you well know, John Boyd was obsessed with analysis and synthesis every moment of the day. And among many other things, ultimately he became an expert about thinking and, and learning. So if we read the book, we, we learn about the, uh, the long and late night phone calls that he gave to, uh, uh, to some of his trusted confidants. and You were certainly the recipient of, of some of those. Just interested, what did he teach you about the value of deep thought and, and reflection?
1: He taught me that, well he he was a pain in the ass to begin with, because he'd call at three o'clock in the morning, and the telephone would ring and my wife, we had the phone, and she'd pick it up, and she'd just say, it's John, (laughs) yeah John, Ron here, Um, I'm working on such and such, Whatever. do you think the word word would or could be better, as I'm explaining whatever it was that he was explaining, John, it's three o'clock in the morning. Well, well, what do you think, Ron? I say I'd have him read the sentence, you know. And I say, uh, well, John, uh, I think uh, uh, could would uh, would uh, work the best. He said, right. I'll put wood in there. See, <laughs> <it> would- <laughs> so no, but seriously, um, one of the th- one of the um, when you're a, a thinker. Like, obviously, Lawrence has thought a lot about survival in his book, and by the way, I enjoyed it very much, Lawrence, and that's very well done. Um, it's a, the life of a writer is one of the most, it's one of the most lonesome lives a man, person can imagine. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, yeah I have to like to be alone in a room a lot.
1: <laughs> Did you hear that? You have to like to be alone and have, if you're married having a spouse that says you never spend any time with me you, know, you have to go down you to say, you're not doing
2: anything why don't you come and
1: help me there you go <laughs> anyway anyhow, um john boyd needed someone to bounce ideas we all need a backboard in our life someone we trust someone we trust in many cases it's your spouse or 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 another another or somebody at work or whatever we all need that backboard to test our ideas to verbalize and 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 the most critical and d- the deepest thinkers they they kind of get wrapped around the axle I, I, I don't know this experientially I just have been told this because uh, I'm not that deep a thinker but it, it, it's, it's it, frankly uh, they need somebody to kind of bounce it off hear themselves say something and it comes back to them and and that was my role as his trusted friend and, and former student. I keep coming back to this word trust. If I may just have a moment, may I address that for a second? Um, how important is trust in your profession? If it is, nod your head. That's OK. If it isn't, give me this. All right. How important on a scale of 1 to 10? A 2? a 10, probably, we're close to it. Well, if it's that important, how do you define it? If you can't define it, how can you get it or expect it? Have you thought about that? Don't tell me about being trustworthy if you can't define what you mean by trustworthy. How can I be trustworthy if I don't know what it is and if I leave you with anything today I would like to challenge you to give some serious thought to what that word really means because because it, it, it is important whether you're a fire a fireman a firefighter or whether you're a, a pilot or, or attorney or whatever you whatever your profession you know you, you You've got to be trustworthy. Now, not everybody needs to trust you. That's their, that's their decision, isn't it? But you have a responsibility to be trustworthy. So how do you define it? Well, here's how we define it. And, and I hope you take this with you and then build on it. Just three things from our perspective. Honesty truth, whole truth, but nothing but the truth, understanding that a thousand years ago or so a lot of people thought the world was flat. So We tell the truth to the very best of our ability, particularly imp- important in the investment world where I, for the last 45 years or so, I've been involved. Integrity, doing what you say you're going to do every time, on time, exactly. As expected, understanding that stuff happens. And when it happens, boss, you'll be the first one to know so that you can make alternative plans so we don't fall on our butt here. Integrity, doing what you say you're going to do, on time, every time, exactly as expected. And finally, competence, craftsmanship, dedicating yourself to the art and science of firefighting you're spending time looking at People Magazine uh, instead of in the books learning how uh, this person or that person successfully dealt with this particular fire-related incident or that, you're not working on your competence and your craftsmanship. Uh, you are shortchanging yourself from, sh- from a trustworthy standpoint. Honesty, integrity, competence. I didn't get that. That's about the only original thing I've ever said in my life. That's a Ron Catman. You can, and you're welcome to it. Be my guest. My gift to you. And you see, under each one of those criteria—honesty, integrity, and competence—there are lots of sub-stuff you can put under, because your background, education, experience is going to have. You know what is being truthful has some subsets to it, and and being. Uh, a person of integrity has some subsets to it and, and so forth. You develop your own from that little, that little framework. You hear them use the word framework. There's, that's a good framework for you and it has served me well.